Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. Brothers and sisters, the book that you have in your lap, the book that I've read out of this evening is the Word of God. We believe that. We've said that over and over again. Our God, the only true God, is a God who has been pleased to speak, to open his mouth and speak, and he's been pleased to preserve that which he has spoken in the written text that is before us, in a text that we call the Bible. This is a treasure to the heart of the Christian, and he has done that providentially under his decree, as we heard this evening. It's all God-breathed. It is all supremely authoritative over your life and mine, and in fact, over every creature he has made, because he is God, and he is the creator, and everyone else is a creature. It is truth, and it stands forever, as that, as that emblem says on the front of the pulpit it is his word and in his word there are many doctrines there are many teachings there are many claims there are many truths in his word and it's all important precisely because of the origin of the word because the word has its origin in god and in god alone yes there's a series of prophets that open their mouth and a series of prophets that have written and apostles But it is ultimately authoritative because it comes from the heart of God intended for the people of God. It's all truth. It is all God's word. But there are truths in his word that are pivotal. There are truths in his word that hinge upon a particular truth. Whereby all those truths that are spoken and uttered, the promises that are spoken or uttered or written are hinging upon a particular truth. In his word. Beloved brothers and sisters, what I'm trying to say is this. The Christian faith, the message of the gospel, your salvation and mine. It all hinges upon a pillar of truth. And that pillar of truth is written right here before us in the text here in John chapter 11 in verse 25. Hear me now. Our whole faith stands or falls upon the veracity of the truth of the proclamation that comes out of the mouth of our Lord and our Savior when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's it, beloved. I am the resurrection and the life. You can believe what you believe about Jesus. You can say high and lofty things about him. You can respect him and exalt him. But if this truth has not been embraced in your heart by faith, let me tell you, you have nothing. You have nothing. Our whole faith depends upon, it is rooted upon, it is hinged upon the truth that Jesus speaks here in John chapter 11 verse 25 when he says, I I am the resurrection and the life. Our whole faith stands or falls on the veracity of this truth. And beloved brothers and sisters, if this truth were not true, then in the words of the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15, you and I, Christians, would be pitied most among all people. But the good news is he does speak truth. And the words before us, are true. The question is, do you believe them? The setting continues. It hasn't changed. The disciples now, Lord, have come over the Jordan River and now they find themselves at the outskirts of a place called Bethany in Judea, not far from the temple ground. We know this much thus far. We know that they're only a stone's throw away from Jerusalem. They're about maybe three, a bit under 3,000 meters away from uh, the temple grounds, maybe 25 minutes, 30 minutes tops walking distance. So they're not very far from the heat that is taking place in Jerusalem. We also know that when they arrive, that, that Lazarus has been in the tomb 
four days. He's been dead and he's been buried for four days. And we also know there are, a, there are many Jews that have possibly come from Jerusalem in the house of Mary and Martha trying to console this family because of one of their loved ones. Their, their brother Lazarus had just died recently, four days earlier, in fact. And the first to see our Lord when she, or first sister to see our Lord upon knowing or hearing that Jesus has come to town is who? It's Martha. And when Martha hears about our Lord, she races out to meet with him. And the first words she says is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I won't unpack these words again. We went through them last week. But what we see here is a, a slight hint of complaint, maybe. Lord, if you had been here, Lord, had your timing of being that you would be here before my brother was dead, my brother would not be dead now. Lazarus would be alive. Might have been a hint of complaint, but we also see, if you remember from last week, that there is faith in these words. Why, she acknowledges that Jesus is able to heal. She acknowledges that Jesus has the strength and the power of God to heal. Who can heal a man who is destined to die? Because that grip, the grip of that sickness, will bring him to death in a few days' time. She says, had you have been here, you would have brought healing to his body, and my brother would not have died. There is a settled assurance in that. She does have a, a faith. And she also goes on to say, as we read today, that she believes that even now, Lord, even now, Jesus, if whatever you ask from God, I know God will give you. Exactly what she means by those words, I couldn't tell you. But one thing I think, reading through the narrative and going through the, the, the words that she continues to proclaim as we work our way through the book, I don't think those words allowed for her to believe that Jesus would actually raise Lazarus from the dead then and there. Whatever she meant, I'm sure she was sincere, I can't tell you what it is. But from what she says next and moving forward, I don't believe that those words allow in her heart to believe that Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead even, even now. And there's a problem with that because that's exactly the point that Jesus wishes to make. That he does have power over death. That sin's curse and the consequence of sin that has impacted every single human being who has ever walked this planet... That Jesus has come with the power to reverse the consequence of sin. To deal with sin and then to reverse the consequence of sin for his people. That the, the sin's consequences, which is death, brought death and destruction and corruption in this world. That every human being will experience one day that Jesus has power over death. That Jesus has power over destruction. And, and, that's, and that's what he intends to teach all who are before him on this day. And, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead is intended to demonstrate that he can do it. That, that's, that's what he intends to do. That his words, as high and lofty as they may sound, are rooted in actual truth, in absolute truth. A truth that will be demonstrated in the raising up of a man who's been dead for four days. Dead and buried. You see, that's the point Jesus is going to make. He has power to raise the dead. You see, he opened his mouth and he says so. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. And there's those who are hearing him, which at this point is Martha and, and the disciples. And they may believe him. But how can he demonstrate that he is the resurrection and the life? How can he show them that he is indeed the resurrection and the life? There's many things that Jesus has opened his mouth and he's declared some very high claims. Where the Jews have wanted to stone him because of them. And they don't believe him. But here Jesus is saying that although I'm declaring to you something that is, might be remarkable and extraordinary to your own mind, something that is hard for you to fathom, the truth of the matter is I am going to demonstrate my power so that what I declare that you cannot see will be believed by that which you can see. You see, any miracle that Jesus performs 
always has a greater meaning than the miracle itself. That's why the Apostle John says they're signs and not miracles, although they are miracles, they are supernatural. But the Apostle John says they're signs because whenever Jesus performs one, he's always pointing to something greater than the sign itself. I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who would hear those words, that would be a hard pill to swallow in this day because they know in this day, the Jews knew that could be only God, the power of God. He's the only one who can resurrect the dead. Remember, resurrection preassumes death and life is found in God himself. It's a hard pill to swallow without supernatural help. And so what we have before us is a physical demonstration a power that will authenticate the sublime truths of our Lord and our Saviour Jesus Christ so that they, through what they can see, would stand back and say, wait a minute, if what we see can only be accomplished through the power of the only true God, that means God has sanctioned this man in all that he does. Therefore, God has sanctioned this man in all that he says. So Jesus does that quite often, doesn't he? He he does a miracle or performs a sign. And then he has a greater meaning. He has a a, a greater spiritual meaning that he's teaching the people, which which there's no way of them, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, proving in their hearts he's right. Uh, Let me give you an example. You remember back in Mark Mark chapter 2. Remember back in Mark chapter 2, the, the paralytic, the paralytic who had some gracious friends. Jesus was there in Capernaum, different setting, and, and his friends had brought him and, and brought the paralytic, went on the roof, broke the roof away just enough to, to drop the, or to lower, not drop it, but to lower the mat that their paralyzed friend was upon through the roof so he could be there before the Lord, and they knew that Lord had the power to heal him. And when Jesus sees this man lying helpless, lame, Unable to get off the mat before him, he says something remarkable, actually something quite unexpected. Son, your sins are forgiven. He's a paralyzed man. He wants to be healed. Son, your sins are forgiven. You remember the crowd? They went off their head in outrage. Who is this man? Only God can heal sins. He's blaspheming. Yes, see, there's no way of them being able to substantiate what Jesus is saying. Because sins are in the heart. And only God knows the sin. And only God can forgive the sin. So this Jesus opens his mouth and utters some words that they can't prove to be right or wrong. And then Jesus says, remember what Jesus says? Listen to what he says. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. Go home. And immediately that man picked up his bed and went home and the crowd had their jaws drop. Because here you have Jesus saying words that we thought are only God himself is able to forgive sins. And yet only God is able to bring healing to a person who is this paralyzed. And so with God putting his powerful hand in, in Christ and with the, the demonstration of the power of God is being manifest through Christ, you've got to stand back and say, God is in this. Could, could God also be in his words, his declarations, his claims? Absolutely. And that's what we see here. You see, Lazarus will not remain in the grave because Jesus will raise him to authenticate that he is the resurrection and the life to those who are around him who will raise Lazarus from the dead. And the many who have come to console the grieving family of their loved one, they will witness an irrefutable demonstration of the power of God through the Son of God over death. And the only true God and his Son will, will be glorified. And our Lord, knowing what he will do, looks upon Martha and he says in verse 23, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Death will not have the last say. Not when I'm around. Death will not have the last say with your brother Lazarus. Now, of course, the Lord was speaking in the immediate sense because Because he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But Mary didn't quite get it. She didn't quite understand. Do you blame her? I mean, you and I have read this passage. We know how the story ends. 
We've read it multiple times. We have the, the doctrines of the resurrection in our minds. We've read them, we've studied them, meditated upon them, we've, we've, we've searched this scripture and we know how this story ends. But can you imagine working out in real time? I, I, don't, I don't blame her for misunderstanding the Lord. In fact, to be honest, if I was there, I probably would have responded the same way. Martha said to him, she says, I know. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Okay, so she misses the point. She misses the point that Jesus is making. But let's commend her on something. Can she be commended on a good theology at least? Oh, we can't be sure because about whether how much she knew and what her heart was intending with these words. But at least she believed and she had conviction of the resurrection on the last day. At least she had conviction that her brother will rise again on the last day. Now, we know this family was very close to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that Christ would stay at their place. We'll see that in the next chapter. How much of the Lord's teaching she was apprised to? I, I don't know. I can tell you this much. I can tell you what we have before us in the four Gospels, in the earthly ministry of our Lord and our Savior, in in about three and a bit years that he was walking the earth teaching, what we have before us collectively of the Lord's teaching that has been recorded for us in the Gospel, you and I can read in the space of under one day. Now that is sufficient for us because the God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who has preserved this word for us and it is sufficient for your life and mine. We don't need to know beyond what is written. We don't need to go beyond what is written. But the fact of the matter is, it's quite possible that this family has been apprised to, to, to the teaching of our Lord. One on one. Maybe. But even if that's not the case... When Jesus was in Jerusalem, a, a couple of years earlier, he taught of the resurrection. She might have been there and she, she might have learned from the hand of the Lord. It's not a stretch to think that Martha had sat at the feet of the Lord and learned from him just like her sister Mary. It's not a stretch to think that she had an authentic understanding of the resurrection. Because what we see here, it seems like she did have an authentic understanding of the resurrection. But beloved, beyond this, whether or not she learnt about the resurrection on the last day from the mouth of our Lord or not. What I said earlier about the resurrection, about it being the pivotal doctrine, it being the hinge that all truths are hinged upon, that your faith and mine are dependent, they stand or fall, it stands or falls upon this doctrine that Jesus is the resurrection of life. You would think that this doctrine is at least hinted at. Or taught in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, right? You, you would think as much, and it is. And that's why, if you remember, that's why Jesus rebukes the Sadducees. You remember the, the rebuke to the Sadducees back in Matthew chapter 22, or the parallel passage in Luke chapter 20, or Mark chapter 12? You remember the Sadducees were a sect in Jerusalem in the first century. It's S E C. T.S., a sect, a group of people in the first century Jerusalem. There was the Sadducees, there was the Pharisees, there was the Essenes and the Zealots. The Sadducees were the ones with the power. They were the men of influence. In fact, they had the majority of the Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jews in this day. And they also occupied a lot of the the temple space because many of them were actually priests. The Sadducees had means. They had wealth. And in fact, that was one of their heart's desire to attain wealth. Why? Because it was for them, it was really about the here and the now. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in angels. And actually some writings in the church fathers, not from scripture, would tell us, at least suggest to us, that their belief in the scripture was only the first five books of the Bible. The books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the rest of the Bible. That's the law, the rest of the Bible. They acknowledge as good teaching, but they may not have seen it as the word of God. We can't be sure on that. But it's interesting that when Jesus replies to their claims, he takes them to the Pentateuch. You remember what they said to our Lord when, this, when they were speaking about the resurrection? Remember the absurd scenario they gave to our Lord Jesus? They said to him, Okay, and I think they're trying to rebuke our Lord and, and make, make claim of the, the doctrine of the resurrection to be quite absurd, at least in their eyes. 
he, he, he says, or they say to him, okay, so Lord, let me give you a scenario. There's a woman. She marries a man and the man dies and she marries another man and that man dies and marries another man and that man dies and goes on for seven. Seven husbands, they all die. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? You can imagine the smirk on their faith going, we got him, we've cornered him. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees couldn't do it. We've done it. How is he going to respond? And Jesus looks at them and rebukes them and says, you neither know the power of God nor the scripture. It's interesting he says that. It's interesting he says that you don't know the scripture. That means Jesus is saying that your denial of the resurrection is because of your ignorance of scripture, because if you knew the scripture, you would know there is such a thing as a resurrection from the dead. That the old covenant, the old testament speaks to this pivotal doctrine. It speaks to the reversal of, of sin's calamity, death and destruction being brought into the world. That God has a, a grand plan to bring an end to the effects of sin and bring life and life everlasting through the resurrection. That's what they say. And Jesus says, you are so, so wrong. You have no understanding of the scriptures. And then he goes on, and this is his reply. And then our Lord quotes to them from Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, he says, As for the resurrection of the dead, you have not read. Have you not read what was said by our Lord? My apologies. Have you not read what was said by God? It's interesting. Have you not read what was said? Jesus is saying that that which is in Scripture is spoken by God. But that's a sermon for another day. And then he goes on to say, I am the God of Abraham. And the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. The resurrection is there, Jesus is saying. But you're ignorant of the truth that is found in Scripture. There are other examples, even in the Pentateuch. You think of Genesis chapter 22, when Abraham took his son Isaac, his only Son, the word says. And he had a, a knife in his hand because he was requested or commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac there on Mount Moriah, the very mountain that Christ was crucified. You remember with the, the knife and ready to plunge it into the heart of his son. And the Lord provides a ram in the thicket. You remember. You remember what the author of the Hebrews says? He says that Abraham believed that God would be able to bring him back from the dead. And in fact, he goes on to say, and figuratively speaking, he did bring him back or brought his son back from the dead. But as we progress through scripture and we get into the prophets, it gets clearer. The doctrine of the resurrection gets clearer and clearer as we, as we enter into the, the prophets. Not as clear as the New Testament teaching. Not as clear as the, the, the light being dimmed right, is it dimmed? No, it brightened right up in the New Testament teaching of our Lord and the apostles. But it's there and it's clear. You just need to look for it. Let me give you a few examples. Job. How can we forget the book of Job? The man going through torment. The hurting after losing his own family. Not unlike Martha except to a greater level. Then he says these words in Job chapter 19. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last day he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, death, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Speaking under inspiration of the Spirit of God. The prophets, Isaiah, let me give you an example in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 26, we read, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The resurrection is hinted in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah. Can you, can you think of how? Remember Jesus, the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes said, Give us a sign! Give us a sign. And Jesus says, evil generation always requesting a sign. You'll get the sign, but you'll get the sign of Jonah. What was the sign of Jonah? Swallowed in the heart of the belly of the whale, that big fish, for three days and then life. And Jesus is exampling that. And he goes on to say that he will be buried in the, in the ground, in the earth for three days. And then he will, he will rise from the dead. The resurrection is found in the Old Covenant. Can it get any clearer than maybe Ezekiel chapter 37, if I want to give you another one? 
You remember that passage that is titled in your Bibles, The Valley of Dry Bones? Dry, crusty, dead bones. Breathe, prophesy on them, uh, the, the Lord says to Ezekiel. And then, and then sinew and flesh begins to develop. The Bible is very clear to make sure that you understand that their flesh comes back. And then they become an army, a mighty army unto the Lord. And then later on in that same chapter, it speaks about the resurrection from the dead. But if I wanted to take you to one passage, and there are many, I reckon I'd take you to Daniel chapter 12. Because Daniel chapter 12, chapter 12, from verse 2. Actually, if you want to open your Bibles, you may do that. Let's open our Bibles to Daniel chapter 12. Start from verse 1. Daniel chapter 12 from verse 1. Let me read to you. Daniel chapter 12 from verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn may turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Did you see what he said? And many, verse 2, of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is what we speak about. That's what Martha is speaking about, the resurrection in the last day. That's what Martha is speaking about when she she speaks about what you and I would call the general resurrection of of that last day. Beloved, the resurrection is clearly taught in the Old Testament as it is in the New, far clearer in the New, far more comprehensive in you. But this very critical doctrine is also taught in the old covenant. And Martha had embraced this truth and then she repeats it to the Lord. And that is commendable because there were many among the Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But here's the thing it's not what Jesus meant when he said, Your brother will rise again. Commended for a proper orthodox understanding of the resurrection. But that's not what Jesus is meaning. He had something more immediate, more intimate in view. And she, as of yet, didn't understand that. But she will before the narrative is over. So Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Beloved brothers and sisters, this is the fifth great I am statement in the gospel according to John thus far. How many are there in this gospel? Seven, spot on. You remember what they are? I am, in back in chapter 6, I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Whoever comes to me will not hunger and whoever, whoever believes in me will never thirst. And back in chapter 8, we get the second, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows after me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of of life. In chapter 10, we find two, within two verses of each other. One is, I am the door of the sheep. There's no other way. There's no other way into the penfold of God except through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And now here we have, I am the resurrection and the life. It won't be long before we get to chapter 14 when Jesus says those wonderful words to the disciples in the upper room discourse. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father 
but through me. And then in chapter 15, and by God's grace, by God's grace, I intend to get there within the next three years. In chapter 15, we have the last of his statements where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him. It is he who bears much fruit. And then he goes on to say, for apart from me, you can do nothing. These great I am statements speak something of who Jesus is. These great I am statements speak of his attributes, of his property. These great I am statements speak volumes about who the Son of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is. But they have their roots somewhere. Their root is found in the old covenant. Because the I am statements come with what they call a, a, a predicate nominative. And, and that is the expression like I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. But the great I am is rooted back in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 3 in fact. When Moses was called by God upon seeing the burning bush there at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and he came before the presence of the Lord. You remember when God commissioned him and sent him to go into Egypt and to release or to bring out the people of Israel from the bondage under the Pharaoh. Because God has intended and promised to their fathers, Abraham and and Isaac and, and Jacob, that this people would be a people with a land and he will presence himself among them. They'll be more blessed than all the people and all the nations of the world. And he sent Moses into Pharaoh to do that task, to be commissioned by the Lord. Moses asks the Lord, when they ask me, who sent you? What shall I say? And the Lord said to him, I am who I am. When they ask you, who sent you? You say, I've been sent by I am. In these I am statements in the gospel according to John, in seven of them, yes, Jesus speaks volumes about who he is when we're looking at the the predicate nominative that is what comes after the great I am. But even before you get to that, he's making a huge statement because he's saying, I am the only true God. The covenant name that God has given to his people, he carries that and he uses that. Now, This is a self-designation that God has given. He is the great I am. Because God has not become. He always was. And Christ is is declaring of himself, don't you think for a moment of me being sent into this world, being born of a virgin, that there was a point of my creation that's not me. I am. I am. You and I may skip. You and I might read through the text and, and maybe to some degree we, we might glance over it and not give it the, the weight that it deserves because we're here 2022 towards the end of it. The Jews, the Jews, they knew. And that's why they tried to stone our Lord back in chapter 8 when Jesus declared himself to be the I am. They knew what Jesus was doing. And the chapter just before this one, in chapter 10, they also try to stone our Lord. Why? Because he said, I and the Father are are one. Jesus is saying, I'm equal with the Father. Now, whether or not his audience believed his claims, he believed it. And that's what he was declaring. And as a result, they tried, were attempted, attempted to kill him. I won't go into much details about, about what it is to be the great I am. Because we've already unpacked it to some degree in the previous four times that we've crossed the I am, the previous four I am statements of our Lord. So if you're interested, you can go back to chapter 6 or chapter 8 and there's two times in chapter 10 where you can unpack different elements that we, that are brought up in those sermons. So I'm not going to be so concerned this time round to go into the I am. I'm going to be more concerned to look at the predicate nominative. That is when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The claim of particular attributes or properties that Jesus is giving to him, to himself. Now, having said that, I actually won't be going there today. 
I intended, and I did say last time that I, my intention is to bring this section to a close, verse 27, but I have too much to say. So what I'll do is we'll, we'll go there the next time in a few weeks, Lord willing, but I'm still going to stay here because that's where we're at. I am the resurrection and the life. I want to look at those terms, the resurrection and the life, what Jesus means by that, and I want you to see that I believe also he means two distinct truths. You may look at that and think, is, are these synonymous? Is Jesus saying, I'm the resurrection and I'm the life? Are they one and the same? And I'll tell you now, they're not one and the same. Jesus does specifically mean two different distinct truths when he says, I am the resurrection and I am the life. But what I want to do this, this evening with the time that we have left, the little time that we have left, is to just look at the context. Just look at the context and bring out one element that pertains to the context of what Jesus is doing and who he's speaking to. And then trust that the Lord will bless us through that. And then the next time we come here, we'll unpack the glorious truth of what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the, and the life. So brothers and sisters, what is the context that is before us? These words weren't spoken in a classroom setting. These words were spoken to Martha, a hurting sister. And these are the response of our Lord to her to her response to him when she says, I believe, yes, that my brother will rise in the resurrection in the last day. This is beyond our Lord making a theological statement, although he is. These words are spoken in a particular setting to a particular audience. You see, often I think we need to be mindful of this and often I think we need to be reminded of it. I hinted at this last week. When we come across these grandiose, glorious, even sometimes mind-boggling statements and claims of our Lord, we, we're so shocked and, I don't know, overwhelmed with the greatness of it that we just want to explore it and we get lost in exploring the vastness and the greatness of it all. And then we may actually forget that he spoke those words in a particular context to particular people. And, and so we, we see the big picture, but we, we don't actually come down and actually look at the, the context for which they were spoken, the immediate context. Because, brothers and sisters, the claim of our Lord is high and lofty and it is absolutely glorious. Because what he means by those words impacts you and I and every person who's ever walked this earth without this truth being true. The veracity of this truth is the very cornerstone of everything we believe. So it's glorious, it's huge, it's, it's grand. But also the way he spoke this truth. Who was the audience? Mother. His disciples were with him. It wasn't as though there was a whole heap of thousands of people or, or even multitudes. Those Jews are still in the home. They're not going anywhere until, Ma until Mary leaves the home. They'll follow her then. But for now, it's Martha. And Jesus' attention is at Martha. And his disciples are there and they're listening. And it's in that context that we see and that we witness the tenderness of our Lord. It's in that context that we, that we witness his love, his compassion, his care. It's in this context that we see the Good Shepherd's heart being manifest towards his, his people. And this is really important, beloved. Because you're an individual, as am I. Yes, we are part of the church. Yes, we are part of the bride. But this is the Good Shepherd that brings and calls out his own one sheep at a time. He doesn't put you all in a group and says, I'm going to deal with you as though I'm dealing with someone in a classroom. He's intimate with his people. Let's not lose track of that. The Lord is intimate with His people. This is why we say you ought to have a personal relationship with the Lord. An intimate, personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that is rooted in faith and truth. He's drawn His own unto Himself and He loves His own. His tender mercies are shown through His actions towards His own. You will not be moved to your soul unless you believe that Jesus died upon that cross for me. Individually. For me. Yes, he died for the church. But he died for me. 
You know, when Jesus calls his sheep, he calls them by name. Christian, if you have come to trust in the Lord, if by his grace, through faith, you've come to embrace his salvation, he's called you by name. Do you know what that means? That means that your name was known to him before you were even born. Before your parents were born, before Adam was born. That means your name was known to him before he uttered a single Adam into existence. Dwell on that. You're not worthy. And nor am I. Dwell on that. Jesus is a personal saviour. Let's not get lost when we see these grandiose claims and statements and put them up there. Let's bring them and make them personally touch our hearts. May they move our soul. May they move our soul. Jesus is a personal savior. He's the good shepherd and he speaks in love for the benefit of his sheep. And at the moment, the sheep that he's concerned with is Martha. And in her response to the words about the general revelation or general resurrection, my, my apologies, our Lord says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am. I am. Let's talk about the I am. Now, I said earlier that I'm not going to talk about the I am, but I wasn't going to talk about the I am in the sense that Jesus is declaring himself to be deity. Although he is. But I want to talk to you about I am in the sense of why he's declaring to this Martha, I am. What's he he saying to this individual who stands before him when he says, "I, I am the resurrection and the life. With that in mind, can you see what our Lord is doing? Can you see in these words when he says, I am the resurrection and the life in response to to Martha saying, Lord, Lord, I, I do believe my brother is going to be resurrected on the last day. Where's Martha looking? Where's Martha's attention? Her attention is way way into the future. Now it is a promise given by God and praise be to God. But is she setting her hope on the future? Is she possibly finding any relief from her grief because of that future day that will come that she'll see her brother again? I I don't know. But I know this. Our Lord takes her eyes and her attention off the future. And he brings them to the present. And when he brings them to the present, he brings her eyes upon him. He looks at Martha's teary eyes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Mother, don't place your trust in a distant event. Place your trust in me. Place your trust in me. I am the resurrection and the life. Oh, beloved, what a critical lesson it is for Martha to learn that lesson. What a critical lesson it is for us to learn this lesson. There are such blessings and wonderful blessings to come in the future. Wonderful promises that are yet to be fulfilled for the believer. And they're glorious. And when we think about them, they are so, so glorious. They're certainties. And they will take place because God of the universe has promised. And when God has spoken, He's a God who keeps His promises. And He will bring them to pass. He will bring them to pass. But the question we need to ask ourselves is have we placed our hope? Have we placed our hope in that which is yet to come? Have we placed our hope in a doctrine Have we placed our hope in a blessing or a promise of God to come? Or have we placed our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have we placed our hope in an event? Or have we placed our hope in a person? 
Because the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of our Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles who opened their mouth to speak His words and write His words, it is this. You hope in Him and in Him alone. Not in the promises of future, not in the events, not in the doctrines, not in anything apart from Jesus Christ. And when we say from this pulpit that we believe and trust in what is written, it's because it's uttered from the mouth of Jesus Christ. Our hope, our faith ought to be in the person of Jesus Christ. Right now, in whom do you hope? Right now, in who do you hope? In what do you hope? Because let me tell you something. The promises of God are glorious. The blessings of God are glorious. What God has preordained for those who love Him is absolutely mind-boggling. I said earlier that the promises of God will be fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled because God is a God who keeps His promises. If there's a testimony of Scripture that we can stand firm on, it is that the testimony is that the promises of God will be fulfilled. They will be fulfilled. We can guarantee that. But let me tell you something: all the promises of God, all the blessings of God, all of them are yes and amen in whom, in Jesus Christ. None of them will be fulfilled apart from Christ. None. None will be fulfilled apart from Christ. This is the Lord's teaching throughout the Scripture, throughout the Gospels. Forever He's trying to turn the eyes and the attention of the people away from the stuff and the things, even the good things that God has promised. He says, but you're missing the point. Turn your eyes upon me. Martha, yes, it's a glorious reality to look to the future resurrection. And yes, you are right in saying that Lazarus will rise. And you are right in saying that you'll see him on the last day. But now you need to know that I am the resurrection and the life. Turn his eyes. Turn our eyes off the, the, the things and the blessings and the benefits of of this world and know that the treasure is the benefactor himself. I believe Jesus is saying, Martha, I don't hope in a future event. Hope in me. You know the beauty of those words? You've got to wait for that. You can have this right now. You can have it right now. And you have your hope in Jesus Christ. You know that all the promises of God, He has amen in Him. And therefore you know that is guaranteed. That is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. Because He's real to me. Because He saved me from my sins. It's guaranteed. Because none of that, none of that is available apart from Him. None of it. Jesus is saying, without me, there is no future event. That resurrection, without me, that won't take place. That life that you, you so desire, the eternal life, without me, that will, never take, that will never take place. Do you get it? Without me, you get neither. In me is everything your soul desires. In me, you have everything. Don't settle your hope on a future event. Place your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. And in due time, the rest will come. The rest will come. It's promised in Him and it will come. All the blessings in the heavenlies are found in who? Ephesians chapter 1, in Jesus Christ. Christ is the treasure without Christ. The question is, is, is He enough? Is He enough? I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus is saying. Beloved brethren, I, I don't want you to hear me saying that we ought not get too excited about the future. No, that's not what I'm saying. We ought to get excited. The promises that the Lord God has promised for those who love him, they are glorious and they ought to excite us. They ought to bring joy to our hearts. But what I'm saying is this. If the essence of your hope and your joy is not found in Christ? If He is not the treasure of your soul from which all good things come? If Christ is not your focal point 
If Christ is not the one that you found your hope in, if you're not hoping in Jesus Christ, the one who bled and died for you upon that cross of Calvary, and has bestowed His own life upon you, if your hope is not on Him, then looking towards, hear this, looking towards the benefits and the blessings and the promises of God, apart from Christ, is idolatrous. It's idolatry. It's idol worship apart from Jesus Christ. Because you and I get nothing apart from Jesus. The greatest treasure of the heart is Jesus Christ. And you get to enjoy that treasure even even now. The I am statements are not only proclamations of deity... But they're also meant to turn the eyes and the ears of the listener to the one who utters them and to realize that in him is everything. In Jesus is everything. What do you need? What does your soul need? Think of it this way. When Jesus utters those statements, of course there's other things going, but this is the element I want to speak to you about today. When Jesus utters those words, what are the people thinking? When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, what are the people concerned with? Filling the tummy. He just fed them. The 5,000, remember, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they chased him over to Capernaum. Why? Because he can give us more of his bread. In those days, bread was very difficult to come by because it was hard work. You want bread? Jesus Christ is the bread for your soul. You want light? You want to know where you're going? Because this world is darkness. There is no light apart from Him. Apart from Him, there's only darkness. Pitch darkness. You'll tremble, you'll stumble, and you will fall apart from Christ. You want, I am the light of the world. You want to know how to come into the kingdom of God? I am the door of the sheep. You want to know how to be led through the terrains of this life, the ups and downs, the difficulties of this life, the snares, the deception of this world? The deception of riches, you want to know how to be led? Then you follow after the good shepherd who he himself has laid down his life for you. You want to know how to produce fruit? You can't do it on your own. You can't try really hard and produce spiritual fruit. You need to be rooted in the vine. Jesus Christ, that's the only way to produce fruit and that is how you glorify the Father, because apart from Him, you can do nothing. You want to know the way? Who wants to know the truth? Or are we happy to be satisfied with the lies and the deceptions of this world? Who wants to know the truth? Jesus says, I am the truth. Definite article. No truth apart from me. I am the way. No way apart from me. I am the life. And there's no life apart from me. Every one of His statements, those great I am statements, are pointing the eyes of his listeners and of his sheep to himself. And he says, all that you require is found in me. It's found in me. All your soul desires and, and the satisfaction of your soul is found in me and in no one else. No one else. You get it. Christ is everything. That's what he says when he says, I am. If you have the Son of God, you have everything. A few years ago, I was told the story. I don't often speak the stories that have been told or illustrations. Not because I'm against them, I'm not. It's because I have a poor memory and I just don't remember them. But this one I do remember. It may be common to your ears, I'm not sure, but I'm going to say it again. There was a man, and I don't know if it's true, but I hope he hits the point. There was a man who was quite rich, quite wealthy, a man of means, a very successful businessman. He was also an avid art lover. He loved to collect paintings. This man had one son, an only son, and he loved his son very, very dearly. He was a treasure to his heart. So he had one of the local painters to paint a portrait of his son, a beautiful portrait, and he put it in a prime position in his home. It was a little bit odd where he put it because, because he put it amongst all the other, he's an avid art lover, among the other Rembrandts and the Picassos and Leonardo da Vinci paintings and, I don't know, the Van Goghs. 
So it's a bit odd that he has this picture of this, this, this not known painter and a picture of a son amongst all these, all these treasures. The sad thing is the tragedy struck and his son, his son died. And the father never was able to get over it. His father was grieved. And he was grieved for many, many, many years until, until he too died. Now, without an heir to his possessions, he had millions, if not billions of dollars worth of possessions and the paintings themselves. There's no one had an art collection like him. So the obvious thing is that he, in his will, wrote that it would be auctioned. All his stuff will be auctioned. And you can imagine those art lovers who had known what this man has, because it's always registered, and they got very excited, very excited indeed. And so on the day of the auction, they, there was people, all the who's who of the world were, were there, and, the, and the, the auction hall was completely filled. It was actually in his home, in his, in his mansion. So the auctioneer comes out, and all these very rich individuals are, are eyeballing all the paintings that add to their collection. As the auctioneer comes to the front, I some instructions and he begins. The first item on the schedule is, you guessed it, the picture of his son. So, five dollars? Five dollars? Anyone? Five dollars? Five dollars? Can anyone give me five dollars for this picture? Anyone? Can you give me five dollars for the picture? And before you know it, a voice in the background, soft, I'll, I'll give you five dollars. Because in the back corner was his servant who had served this master for many, many years. He'd known the son and was quite fond of the son. He even waited upon him. He's now without a job. He had to think twice whether he can afford the $5 for that painting because he doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from. But he, he decides to buy it anyway. The other rich entrepreneurs were thinking, get it over and done with. Come on, when are you going to start with the good stuff? We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. Finally, he finishes $5. Going once, going twice. Sold. Painting sold. And then, the unimaginable. The auctioneer then opens his mouth and says to a, a full room, a full hall, thank you so much for coming. I hope you all have a safe trip back. To their disgust and outrage, uh, they, they, they cried out, what are you talking about? All these other paintings still have yet don't have an owner. And he said, ah, you're wrong. Because the owner had only one instruction in his will, only one simple instruction, and it is this, whoever has or receives my son, he is the one who gets everything. Whoever has the son, he gets everything also. All the blessings, all the glories, all the treasures, all the promises of God are in Jesus Christ. And apart from Him, there's nothing. Apart from Him, there's nothing. If you have the Son, you have everything. Beloved, you know why? Because God is not holding back. God the Father, from whom all good things come, He's not holding back that which is most valuable to him. His own son, he gave into this world to be a sacrifice on behalf of sinful individuals who were waving their fist at him, who hated him, who despised him. He gave his only begotten son. Beloved, you remember the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 32? Listen to what they say. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us some things? All things. <laughs> what glorious words, all things. If you have Christ, you have everything. Does that not boggle your mind sometimes? That The Bible tells us that we are co-heirs with him what he has inherited is shared with us why because we've been adopted into the family of god that absolutely blows my mind martha needed to learn this lesson brothers and sisters you need to learn this lesson if there are any among us who don't know christ in that way that he is not the treasure of your heart and your soul you need to learn this lesson don't pursue the things of this world 
Don't pursue the things to come. Don't pursue the promises apart from Christ. Don't pursue the heavenly blessings apart from Christ. If you have the Son, you have everything. The question is, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to ask you, is this true? Because irrespective of what you believe, I believe, or everyone else in this planet believes, truth is truth and truth is found in God alone. But I will ask you, do you believe? Because in a few weeks' time, Jesus is going to ask Martha, do you believe this? You know why that's important? Brethren, it's important because if you really believe it, it changes everything. Let's pray.